0: I was reading my quiet time one of the days this week in Isaiah, going through Isaiah, and the um, there's a wonderful couple of verses in the, uh, I guess it's the fifth chapter. You can just listen to them, or if you want to turn there, you can, but we're going to be in Genesis 19, but I just thought Isaiah would be a, a great place to begin for a moment. Because, you know, Jim... Uh, always is so passionate to remind us and that we're so grateful to you, Jim, for reminding us to pray for our country. It's so easy every day when we flip on the news or when we read, read through the news feed uh, on our smartphones to see the, the direction of our nation and the passions of our nation that seem to be so misguided and misplaced and, and, um, um, uh, Not that the issues that we're discussing aren't worthy of discussion, but just how amazingly God is left out of the whole deal. And it just sort of uh, reminds me of Job's counselors. I remember Job's counselors came to him and had all this great advice about what was going wrong in Job's life and what Job needed to do to get it right. At the end of the book, uh, the Lord told uh, the head of these counselors, that uh, he was wrong, and he has not spoken right as uh, as God's servant Job had. Um, you know, Job and the counselors didn't have any scripture to look at. They were just using their common sense grid to figure out life and figure out the world and the way that God operates. And from a from a very naturalistic, or I guess I should say common sense way of thinking, Job's life didn't make any sense at all, that he would be going through what he was going through. Uh, It didn't make any sense at all. And if God was a God of justice, he would do X, Y, Z. And this is what Job's friends were telling him. And of course, Job was sort of thinking the same thing, except Job knew he hadn't done anything wrong. So Job's problem was, Lord, why is this happening to me when I haven't done anything wrong? And Job's friends were, you must have done something wrong, and that's why this is happening to you. And the reality is there was something far, far bigger going on, and it wasn't until God spoke to Job, it wasn't until Revelation entered the picture, until Scripture, you might say in in that sense, until God's supernatural revelation entered the conversation that all of a sudden there was peace, because there is a confidence in God's sovereignty and in God's control even amidst the chaos that we see in our world. So anyway, that's that's Job's introduction to Isaiah's introduction to Genesis. So let's get let's look at Isaiah for just a second, or just listen to um, Isaiah chapter five. This is what I read this week that I thought was wonderful. Verse twenty one, Isaiah five twenty one. Woe to those who are right. I'm sorry. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Uh, The verse just before that as well, verse 20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. So, Several times here, a couple times here, Isaiah, or the Lord, is saying woe to those. It's not good when the standard of wisdom is you, when you're wise in your own eyes. The standard of wisdom has to be outside ourselves. And it's just a few verses later, the end of verse 24, where uh, it says, They have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. In other words, they've despised the standard, the standard that is Scripture. So, anyway, just as we watch the the news or the world around us, or even as we look at the chaos in our own lives, we have to filter it all through the Word of God and not through just what's right here in our common sense because we do that, we're wise in our own eyes. Isaiah says, woe to that. Job's counselors got their hands slapped for that. It wasn't until God's word was filtered through that all of a sudden peace is allowed to reign supreme amidst all the chaos we see in the world. We realize God is still in control. Well, let's look at Genesis now, Genesis chapter 19, and we'll continue with our Little Zoom series, I guess we could call it here on Abraham. Abraham. you know, Abraham is such a stained glass person to us. Um, we think about Abraham and we, we typically think of this old man who had such great faith, and he's so otherworldly in the sense that we just don't can't connect with him. He's, he's in the Bible, He's the founder of the Hebrew race. You know, he's uh, he's held up as this model of great faith and uh, godliness. The fact is, he was a person just like us. He struggled with, with what we struggle with, and we've seen some of those struggles. After God called him to leave his comfortable life there in Ur and to go to a place where he didn't know where he was going, he finally uh, shows up and he's living in a tent for all these years. He's sojourning. He doesn't own any of the land. There's a famine, and so he goes down to Egypt, which is a compromise. He shouldn't have done that, but he went and uh they suffered the consequences of it, came back in, learned his lesson, and then he was so blessed by God with his flocks that he and his uh relative lot had to part company there wasn't enough grass to sustain them were they all where they were, and lot Chose to go and dwell down in the valley, and the valley, uh, the Jordan Valley, which is just east of um, of Jerusalem, and all of that. So Genesis nineteen. Uh, somebody's got their audio on, or I do. Uh, anyway, I, I'm hearing my voice echo, so. Dave, could you mute everybody and then unmute me? <laughs> yep. All right. Thank you. So Genesis 19 is where we are, and if you remember from last time, we uh, we looked at how two angels uh, and plus the Lord, so three. People, three men in uh, human form, come to Abraham, and Abraham uh, talks with these three men. And two of the men walk off towards Sodom because God tells Abraham, "said Look, I've heard that uh, I've heard there's terrible things happening in Sodom, and uh, I'm going to send these two down to actually check it out." And then God stands there face to face with Abraham, and Abraham basically pleads on behalf of Sodom, and says, you know, if there's 50 righteous people there, will you spare the city? God says, yeah, I'll do it for 50. And so, and God, Abraham gets the Lord down all the way to 10 righteous people. If we can just find 10 in the city, will you spare it? Sure, I'll spare it for that. Well, there's not even going to be 10 in the city. So, uh, Genesis 19, look right at the very beginning there, verse 1, and uh, we've got... A lot, uh, a lot to go through here, and of course we want to make sure that we also apply this to our lives. So look at verse 1. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground, and he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet, that you may rise early and go on your way. They said, however, No, but we shall spend the night in the square. Yet he urged them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter, and they called out to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may have relations with them. But Lot went out to them at the doorway, and shut the door behind him, and said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with man. Please let me bring them out to you, and you do to them whatever you like. Only do do, do nothing to these men, inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof." You know, Lot knew his city. He knew Sodom. He knew that these men would not be safe sleeping in the square, And so he hurries them home to his house, and then he says, basically, I'm also going to hurry you off in the morning try to get you out of here as fast as possible. We're told in the text that we just read a number of times that it's the men of the city, and the Hebrew text specifically means males. The, the men of the city. In fact, we're told, if you look at this, it says, uh, The men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, young and old, all the people, every quarter. So this is like everybody. All of the men of the city come, and they bang on Lot's door, And they say, they're requesting literally, the Hebrew says, bring these men out that we may know them. Um, That's a a euphemism. Uh, The New American Standard that I just read says have relations with them. The New International Version, you might have that or another more modern translation that takes the, the euphemism out of it and basically says bring them out that we may have sex with them. So, we know what the word know means in this context. It doesn't mean, hey, we want to just shake their hands and invite them to our, uh, you know, club this week. In fact, Lot uses the same uh, word, no when he makes that ridiculous offer for them to take his daughters and know them. Same word. So it's clearly a sexual uh, knowledge. Now... I'm going to put a pause here on Genesis 19 and talk about this for just a second, because I think as we've talked about our country, as we've talked about just the world we live in, this is something we can't just sidestep. And it's so important we do this from a biblical perspective. Again, we can't approach this subject or any subject just with our common sense here, because our common sense gives us we're wise in our own eyes. If that's our only standard, by which we look at look at life and look at the the issues of life, you know as well as I do. Anybody that that uh, has their eyes open these days that uh, homosexuality has taken our culture by storm. It is uh, it has overrun the media, and the movies, and the news. And uh, in some sense, uh, even our laws now, with uh, gay marriage as you know, as a legitimate form of marriage legally, and yet it's not a new thing. We're reading about this here in Genesis 19, which is the about the year 2000 BC. So 4,000 years ago, this was still, this was. A, a major cultural issue two thousand years ago the time of Christ and the time of Paul it was still a major issue at that time 14 of the 15 Roman emperors were homosexual it was deeply ingrained in the first century from the top down and uh, here in the United States we're just really catching up to to world history in this sense but all that to say, homosexuality, at least from our perspective here in America, as with any sexual orientation, is a subject that most folks see as uh, a matter of opinion. Again, we're wise in our own eyes. If the Bible is not the standard, th- then it makes sense. You're going to go with the flow. You're going you're to do what, uh, what seems to meet your need and what certainly the culture is saying it's okay to do. That is what's wise in our own eyes, and not necessarily what Scripture says. But, you know, even some who hold that the Scripture is the Word of God will read it through the lens of uh, believing that uh, homosexuality is, um, is just fine. And uh, it's, I wish that I could say everything that I want to say, or, or I should say everything that the Scripture indicates, all at once right here. It's tough to know what to say first, what to say second, what to say third, in order that it presents a balanced view. So, you know, we need to present a balanced view and not just one view. So let's uh, let's talk about this for just a second. Um, interesting when, uh, I don't know a better way to say it other than to call it gay theology, but when gay theology looks at the sin of Sodom, they say that the sin of Sodom is was not immorality, but it was inhospitality. That is, as Lot says, "Hey, these guys have come under the protection of my roof. You know, don't do this wicked thing." So um, he was protecting those; he was being hospitable to those under his roof, and that the sin of Sodom wasn't immorality, but rather uh, it was inhospitality or being unloving. That is, that these uh, the sin wasn't homosexuality. It was how these homosexuals intended to force it upon this other person, on these other people. So gay theology would look at Genesis 19 and say it was being unloving that God had a problem with. It wasn't the fact that they were homosexual. And um, keep your finger there, if you would, in Genesis And turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And on your way to 1 Corinthians, I want to just mention a couple of other passages. You might uh, jot them down. You won't have time to turn there because I'm not even going to turn there. I'm just going to mention them. But they're very significant in this argument because, uh, for example, the book of 2 Peter clearly refers to the sin of Sodom as sensual. Peter uses that word 2nd Peter chapter 2 here says it is sensual conduct. The book of Jude gets even more specific. The, the book of Jude I think it's around verse 7 says that Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. The uh, that phrase Jude uses there for gross immorality comes from a Greek word that very specifically refers to sexual immorality. There's no getting around that. So, Jude is very clear, as is Peter, uh, that Sodom and Gomorrah's sin was not in, in hospitality or uh, not just that. I've, clearly, they were not being hospitable. <laughs> but the, uh, the means by which they were judged or condemned uh, throughout the scripture was immorality. And so, that uh, that's pretty clear from a biblical perspective, but as far as homosexuality in general, you know Romans one is a, is a great place to to look at that. Again, gay theology looks at Romans one and says that when Paul calls homosexuality unnatural, what Paul means is that it's unnatural for heterosexuals. If you're heterosexual, well, it's unnatural for you. To do these homosexual acts. But if God's made you homosexual, then it's not unnatural and therefore it's okay. That's how, that's how the, um, they look at that. But again, the context of uh, even Romans 1, not to mention the rest of Scripture, the context of Romans 1 shows as Paul is talking about the creation of the world. Remember, that's that same context where Paul says the creation, from the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen from what has been made. So, there's clarity in what has been made so that people are without excuse. And it's in that context of what has been made that Paul calls the homosexuality unnatural or against nature is literally uh, what he says in the Greek. It's um, that it is an act that is against nature. So, all of that is basically to say that design reveals intent. The way God designed it is the way God intended it. Now, 1 Corinthians 6, this is so essential to balancing the conversation. Because if we stopped right there, that would not be enough to say. It's not enough to say the Bible clearly says homosexuality is wrong. Let's uh, let's pray and go to lunch. That is not where to stop. 1 Corinthians 6, look down at verse 9. 1 Corinthians 6, starting at verse 9. Paul says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, and in this day and age, we are being deceived. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. These are great verses. And they're great because these verses have our names, every single one of our names, we find in these verses. One of the greatest failures that we as a church have done today in any conversation, most conversations regarding homosexuality, is we we condemn it, but we don't put it in the context of the fact that we are all worthy of condemnation. Every single one of us is in these verses. Look again at these words. We tend to gravitate toward the words effeminate and homosexual in these verses. You know the word effeminate? Can I just be a little graphic here? You know what that means? That word effeminate is referring to a homosexual who is the passive partner in the homosexual act. And then homosexual is the active partner in the homosexual act. So Paul's being very specific here in the Greek language of who he's referring to. We tend to gravitate there, but we don't notice, We seem to notice, that this verse also says, nor the covetous, in the same sentence. Now, don't raise your hands, but anybody struggle with that yesterday? Absolutely. We still struggle with these things. Just because we were washed, we were sanctified, we were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't mean that these temptations these sins in our lives are not still are not still a struggle i as a heterosexual married man am tempted with adultery i as a heterosexual single guy before i was married was tempted with fornication that doesn't mean that i do it but it means that it's tempting uh, same with being covetous or or if you have the 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 tendency for alcohol, a drunkard, a reviler, you got trouble with your tongue. I mean, we're all in these these verses. And having said that, let me ask so let me ask a, a question. Can a person be a Christian and have homosexual leanings? Well, can a person be a Christian and have leanings toward being covetous? It's right there in the same verse. I'm not saying that that justifies it. What I'm saying is the temptation itself is not sin. Jesus was tempted in all things and yet did not sin. It's what we do with that. It's what we do with the temptation, whether we act on it, whether we take the thought captive and to obedience to Christ. So homosexuality is not an unforgivable sin any more than any other sexual sin is is an unforgivable sin. It's just that important to emphasize. Look down at verse 18. You're in that same chapter, 1 Corinthians 6. He says, flee immorality. Here's what you do with it. You flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price Therefore glorify God with your body. I love that because it's basically saying, look, you may have an inclination toward one of these sins, these sexual sins. That doesn't mean God has designed you to go for it. Just because you have the 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 passion maybe for homosexuality or for fornication or for adultery or for any other uh type of s- uh, sin outside the design will of god that doesn't mean that just because you have that that it's natural and you should go for it paul is saying flee immorality it's going to come it's going to it's going to rear its head in your life and your heart our response is to flee and to uh, and to walk with christ in a faithful way now you're in the chapter 6 look back one chapter to chapter 5 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9 through 13. And here's where another balanced view really, really helps the conversation. 1 Corinthians 9, uh, I'm sorry, First Corinthians 5, verse 9. Paul writes, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with The covetous, notice he's listing those same things again. The covetous, the swindlers, idolaters, for then you'd have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a viler, or a drunkard, or a swindler. See see those lists? He's he's connecting those lists in chapter 5 and chapter 6. He's talking about the same people. He says, don't even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do not judge those. Do you not judge those who are within the church, but those outside? God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. In other words, Paul is saying one of the problems that the world has with us is because we're trying to judge them the same way we judge one another. That, and, Think about it, when the world has its biggest problems with the church and the church speaking about the issue of homosexuality is we're judging them. That's what they hear. That's all they hear. Paul is saying, "You don't do that. You don't call out their sin and let that be the end of the conversation. In fact, they, they should know that you love them. Let God judge the, those outside the church. We take care of, of those inside the church, those who know the standard, those who have, uh, have accepted Jesus Christ and have committed to walk with him. Those are the ones that, that we go to and we deal with regarding sin. But the world, the world needs to hear the gospel. If we talk about if we talk about the, the sin of the world, and the gospel is not part of the conversation it's like what Paul says in uh, here again in 1 Corinthians in that great uh, chapter 13. He says, If I speak in the, the, the tongue of men and angels, but I don't have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If we bring truth, but we don't bring love, our truth is only half-truth. It's got to be in a context of love. So... In fact, Jesus said, as he's referred to Sodom later on, Jesus um, in the Gospels, he says he said to his disciples that if there was a city that refused to accept their teaching, that it would be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. That's Matthew ten fifteen. Then in Matthew eleven, Jesus told Capernaum, remember Jesus told Capernaum. Bethsaida, and Chorazin, because these are the three cities he did most of his miracles in. He said, uh, it'll be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Why? Because uh, Jesus compares Sodom and Israel, amazingly, and he says Israel is worse. Why is Israel worse? Because Israel rejected the Messiah, he says, if, if Sodom had seen the miracles that you see, they'd have repented. Isn't that amazing? Jesus said that. Jesus is com- making this comparison to show that the only thing more tragic than sin is refusing sin's remedy. Let me say that again. Jesus said this, compared Sodom and Israel to show that the only thing more tragic than sin is refusing sin's remedy. Christ removed the threat of judgment by taking our sin on the cross and by dying for our sins. That's why Paul says, Such were some of you, but you've been washed, you've been sanctified, and you've been changed by God. Well, turn back to Genesis 19, and let's uh, make our way through this, the rest of this chapter. Not all of it, but uh, a few key spots in it. The text goes on to say that these two angels, that uh, that Lot, remember, is housing these two angels, and the men in the city come and they want to have relations with these two men, these two angels they think are men. And the text tells us, uh, uh, just before verse fi- 15, that the angels strike these men blind, so they're groping around and they can't find the door. And then verse 15, let's continue. It says, And when morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. So the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters, for the compassion of the Lord was upon him. And they brought him out and put him outside the city. You know, there's an observation we could make about this. It's not really a principle, I guess, so much for our lives, maybe a warning, but there's definitely an observation. And that is that if we live in the world long enough and we tolerate the, uh, the world around us long enough, we're going to hesitate to obey God verse 16 says but he hesitated if you're one who underlines in your bible you might underline those three words but he hesitated lot had been in sodom for so long he had he had confused right and wrong it's like what I, what we read there from isaiah the uh, the whole idea there is that that if you're wise in your own eyes, all of a sudden God's word is not going to be the standard any longer. It's going to be your own common sense. And in our culture's conversation today, it's the same way. If we don't allow the word of God to be the standard, then all of a sudden it's going to start sounding just fine to go along with the culture and to go along with the flow. Lot hesitated. Lot hesitated. And because of the compassion of the Lord, God had to physically grab his hand and pull him and his family out of Sodom. Think about your life for a moment and how God in his grace sometimes had to physically grab you and get you out of wherever you were. Sometimes those violent physical movements in our lives uh, are God's grace to protect us and from, uh, from a destruction that is far worse than the pain of the moment. He wouldn't walk away, so he had to be dragged away. Verse 17, And it came about when they had brought them outside, that one said, one of the angels said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you, and do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains, lest you be swept away. And in the verses that follow here, verses 18 through looks like about 23, Lot goes on again to hesitate and to say, well, you know, we don't really have to go to the mountains, do we? How about this little small city, Zoar? Let's go there. So Lot, again, is looking for a concession to obedience to the Lord. Then verse 24, "...the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven." And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But his wife from behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Now, archaeology hasn't been able to find Sodom and Gomorrah, and you can't, uh, <laughs> you can't wonder why, because it's, uh, it was pretty much wiped off the map. But if you look at the screen here, you can see the, uh, the area of the Dead Sea. And this is the southern area of the Dead Sea, probably in the area where Sodom was. Again, archaeology hasn't found Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities in that area. Uh, some will claim that they have. Some will even claim that they found them on the north side of the Dead Sea, which doesn't fit the text. But it's probably somewhere on the south side. And, but they haven't been found. God literally wiped them off the map. But the evidence of the destruction is everywhere in the sense that uh, this is the, the area of the world that's got this incredible salinity or salt. The fire and brimstone that was rained down from the Lord has created a, a devastation in this area that we can see still today. This uh, Dead Sea, I haven't given you a great picture of the Dead Sea, but there off to the right you can see a little bit of it. The saltiest body of water on the earth. Uh, when you float in it, you uh, you can't sink, which is kind of neat. They have a pillar next to the Dead Sea that uh, is affectionately called Lot's Wife. This uh, this This large pillar, I don't think it's made of salt, it's probably made of the of the uh, of the stone there, but this is a, an actual tourist place that's called Lot's wife, so you can go there and check it out. but there she is looking back or, or whatever this thing is it's just a cool formation. But there are a couple of principles that we can apply from the text today, and uh, I tell you what they go right to the heart and here's the first one. Sinful compromises give us a temporary benefit with long term regret. Sinful compromises give us a temporary benefit with long term regret. To me, one of the most interesting phrases, observations in the text here is verse 25. It seems kind of a throwaway statement, doesn't it? He overthrew the cities, all the valley, and the inhabitants of the cities, but then notice the end of verse 25. And what grew on the ground. Why did Lot move to this area? He moved to this area because of what grew on the ground. He wasn't interested in the inhabitants of the cities. In fact, he probably would have preferred that they weren't there. It was what grew on the ground that Lot wanted. Remember, this valley was like the valley of the Garden of Eden. And... What grew on the ground was toasted, right along with everything else. And this gives us the principle that even though there was a temporary benefit for Lot, I mean, he clearly was blessed financially by moving there. It was temporary benefit, and it gave him long-term regret. Lot not only lost his land, he lost his livestock, he lost his wife, and if we were to continue reading, which we won't, uh, he also lost his daughter's purity verses thirty through thirty five shows us as the saying goes, uh, you can take a lot out of Sodom but it's tough to get Sodom out of Lot. The immorality of Lot and his daughters um, shows up there in the compromise of their interaction. And we won't read it, but verses twenty seven through twenty nine Abraham shows up in the picture here. Remember this is actually all about Abraham. And we see how Abraham prayed. It says that the Lord remembered Abraham. In other words, remembered Abraham's prayer for Lot, and uh, God rescued and had mercy on Lot and his family. So that's the first principle. Sinful compromises give us a temporary benefit with long term regret. Here's the second principle Determine to respond to God with immediate obedience. Determined to dis- to respond to God with immediate obedience, Genesis nineteen verse sixteen says, "But he hesitated." Don't hesitate to take God seriously. If God has clearly spoken to you in your in the Word, then don't hesitate to obey. When our daughters were growing up, uh, one of the things that I constantly hammered into their heads was. The phrase, immediate obedience. Whenever we tell them to do something and they just kind of look at you, my next two words were immediate obedience. (laughs) They didn't like that either. But uh, it's something that they remember even to this day. And it's helpful. It's a helpful thing for us to have in our heads when we are faced in that moment of decision. And you know what I'm talking about you got a moment of decision. Do you open your mouth and you say that very clever, cutting remark that you know is really pretty pretty clever and and actually it's really funny? But it's going to hurt. And it's going to do nothing but just cause somebody to bleed like the thrust of a sword, Proverbs says. Uh, You don't say it. Immediate obedience. When your eyes want to dart to a place where they shouldn't go, immediate obedience obedience. There are a thousand different scenarios that we could put ourselves in, but uh, you know your scenario, and you know your your application of this principle. Immediate obedience is something that you can't go wrong with. Lot hesitated, and as a result, uh, and his wife also hesitated, she looked back. Um, the phrase, I didn't take God seriously, could be the epitaph on many of a tombstone. It probably could be on, um, on Lot's wife's tombstone, if she had had one. Let me read to you a few verses from the Gospel of Luke. Uh, you don't need to turn there, it's, but you can jot the verse down if you'd like. It's Luke 17, starting in verse 28. These are the words of Jesus. Jesus said, "...it was the same as happened in the days of Lot." They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let not the one who was on the housetop and whose goods are in the house go down and take them away. And likewise, let not the one who was in the field turn back. Remember Lot's wife, Jesus said. This is Luke 17, verse 32. Three words, remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life shall lose it, and whoever loses his life shall preserve it. In other words, Jesus is saying whoever gives his life to Christ will preserve it because life with God is really life. That's the best way to live. But whoever seeks to selfishly keep those things in life apart from God, it's these very things that will claim your life and take your life. When Christ said, remember Lot's wife, he is basically saying that she is a monument to all who will not take God's word seriously and who see no harm in just a little compromise. You know, just one one final glance down memory lane at the great life we had in Sodom. And that peak, that, that small compromise ended her life. So we don't hesitate to do God's will. You know, one of the things I find so amazing about this chapter is that Lot really didn't want to leave Sodom. Uh, there's no reason to hesitate. There's no reason to look back. But he did. They'd been in the city for so long that the sin of the city at last was found to be in them. They longed for what they should have loathed. And it it could have destroyed them if God literally, physically Had not dragged them out. Now we all come from different places, different backgrounds. Maybe you lived a long time in Sodom in your life. Oh, maybe your sin wasn't Sodom's sin, but it was just as bad as we saw in 1 Corinthians 6. There's a whole list there. Just pick any one of those, and it is enough to keep you out of the kingdom of God. You may have lived your whole life in Sodom. You may have laughed at the messengers who told you of the end result, but the good news is that, as Paul wrote, uh, but you were washed, There is there can be a corner that can be turned, no matter what your past is, regardless. I love it that uh, Jesus told the Pharisees that the tax collectors and the prostitutes were getting into heaven before the Pharisees. What an incredible statement. doesn't matter your background. What matters is what you do from this point on, specifically placing your faith in the the, the one who died on the cross to pay for all your sins. Or maybe you've been a Christian for years, and like Lot, you're living in Sodom. That is, you are in a place of of deliberate compromise, and you decided, you know what, I'm a Christian, I believe in Christ, but I'm also going to have one foot in the world. Peter says that this righteous man, Lot, was tormented in his righteous soul. And if that's you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And even in those moments where we as Christians decide, you know what, I'm going to indulge just a little bit for the next 30 minutes. What misery that is. When we get on the other side of it, we realize, what was I thinking? The temporary benefit gives long-term regret. And so what do we do? Immediate obedience. When that temptation is there before you, immediate obedience. And, uh, and, and we trust God with the results. So I hope that this has given a, a bit of a balanced view on uh, just the whole issue of homosexuality in our culture, but also our perspective of it. And, uh, and not just homosexuality out there, but whatever the sin and the struggle was that we have in our own lives, the Word of God, the Bible, has got to be the, that which we look through, not our own not our own common sense, but, uh, but the Word of God. And the Word of God gives us the great news that uh, no matter what we've done in the past, Christ is the solution, Christ is the forgiveness, and He is the hope that we're looking forward to, and, uh, and He's one that, that is worthy of our immediate obedience. Let's pray. Father, it's amazing as we open the the words of the text and read of this account that occurred 4,000 years ago, that it's like we're reading today's paper, that the sins of the world are the sins of the world, and the solution to the sins of the world is still the same solution, and that's you. And the means by which it happens in every one of our lives is that you came in by your grace, grabbed our hand, and drug us out of the place that we were and brought us into the safe pasture of your grace and your forgiveness through our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that if there is anyone on our uh, Zoom call today, if there's anyone who is listening that is uh, struggling with homosexuality or with the tendency or uh, with any other kind of sexual compromise or, for that matter, anything else in Paul's list there, even covetousness or slander. Father, that your Spirit would invade our lives in such a way, perhaps even physically grab our hand and remove us when we don't have the, the strength to walk away ourselves and that you would bring us into a place of a greater perspective and trust and faith, that even though our inclinations may lead us one way, your word clearly guides us another way, and we will trust you that what you are uh, leading us to is right and will give us the long-term benefit instead of the long-term regret. Help us in those moments each day, even today, to choose immediate obedience. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.